Let's uh, summarize a couple of things uh, so far, if we might. Um, the first book of First Corinthians is um, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote about oh, 55 or so, 54 uh, A.D. It's uh, one of four letters he wrote to uh, the Corinthian church. Uh, two are in Scripture. He's in uh, the section which is really essentially the first four chapters of, uh, of the letter, dealing with divisions, dealing with uh, cliques. I'm not sure. I think that's still a word that most people know what that means in the 21st century. Um, they're not, they're not um, uh, reflecting the kind of unity and spirit of humility that God wants to see. And so Paul identifies uh, two reasons why those divisions occur. The first reason, which we are basically done with, is the Corinthians did not understand the implications of the message of Christ crucified. They are elevating, uh, exalting uh, their teachers. And there were four of them, if you remember, that they were supposedly following and dividing among themselves because of that. And Paul says, you don't understand that Christ crucified uh, is the wisdom and power of God. It doesn't have anything to do with who's teaching it. It's the message. Focus on the message. Now in verse 5 of chapter 3, he switches from the message to the messenger. Now, for us today in the 21st century, you're probably saying, well, wait a minute. In our churches, we're not... Uh, dividing among, I'm following Paul, I'm following Apollos, I'm following, following Peter. But it is true that sometimes what we do, now listen carefully how I'm going to say that, we elevate people at the expense of Christ. We elevate individuals. Uh, and it may be something to say necessarily one way or the other about them, but we make that individual that person is infallible and is inerrant and is an authoritative of Je- as Jesus. And that's very easy to do. I mean, I, you know, for many, many years was a student, and I had people that I looked up to and so on, but, you know, individual people will always let you down. And uh, Paul keeps saying, follow me because I'm following Jesus. Not follow me, but follow Jesus. As you follow me, I'm trying to follow Jesus. And in, in, a, in a sense, every leader is supposed to reflect Jesus. And any leader that just elevates himself at, or herself at the expense of Jesus and his message has stepped outside the circle of what pleases God. This is the danger Paul sees. I I shared this, I think I shared this here. Um, My wife uh, loves Chuck Swindoll. And if you know who I mean by that, he's a very gifted speaker, very easy to listen to, and and yet excellent teacher. And she and I were having a a discussion one time, and I I don't even remember what it was about, but I said something. She says, but honey, Chuck says... (laughs) So automatically, Chuck was more authoritative than her husband. <laughs> what he was saying was, and it just resonated with her. And it was, I mean, we, we had a big joke about that. But it's, it's not that that's bad, but it's the danger of that. And it gets us off, it certainly did the Corinthians, off the essential message. 
That's about Jesus. It's about his crucifixion, his resurrection. It's the gospel. Now, verse 5, he shifts. Okay, now how should I look at a leader? How should I look at a teacher? How should I look at a great preacher or whatever? So he starts in verse 5. Who or what then is Apollos? What is Paul? So it's not who, but what. Almost he's saying, I'm making this up in a way, but I think it's in back of it. Well, if what you're saying is true, Paul, then how should I look at Paul? How should I look at Apollos? How should I look at Peter? And he answers it in one word. Servants. Now the word there is diakonoi. Uh, some of you, I, I'm not sure, I don't know where you all come from in terms of your churches, but often churches have a leadership position called deacons. That word comes from this term. The akinoi, deacon, is somebody, it literally, that's how it was reached, is someone who waits on tables, someone who's a servant, someone who is a house slave. Is that the same as a doulos? No, that's a different word. Doulos... Diakonoi is a, a servant, like a house servant. Is the Diakon- one all the other connected in any way? Not necessarily. I mean, they're kind of like in the same large group mm-hmm. of like the underclass of Greco-Roman society. But a doulos, uh, or plural douloi, that would be a like a piece of property, a chattel. Mm-hmm. And so a, a, a diakonos is not necessarily, it's like a servant but a, a, a doulos is a real slave. You own that person. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference. Uh, is that... and, and I read it in where I'm remembering from is the context of where somebody pierces their ear with an Oh, yeah. Yes. They do that intentionally yes. as to show their... That they own them. That, mm-hmm. that they own them. That's, and it's a willingness. That's right. They're that's right. They're slave forever. Basically. And that's right. And that, that was very, 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 very common in the ancient world. Uh, not at all, of course, in our world. But I want you to I want you to think about this for just a minute. Do you understand the power of what he's saying here? He is elevating a servant as the model of leadership. Now, you and I live in an age uh, in a culture where I mean there are books written about servant leadership. Uh, there are books written about you lead people by serving them. I mean, that kind of thing. That was not the concept in the ancient world. I mean, the Greco-Roman world was about power. The Greco-Roman world was about the ruthless application of power to accomplish your individual selfish ends. And that's what the Greco-Roman people were used to. And so Paul is now correcting, don't apply those standards to the church. Don't apply those standards to the kind of leadership that's pleasing to God. So he offers a model. He offers a paradigm. It's a servant. So what I'm trying to get you to, to, you have to go back into that ancient world mindset what Paul is suggesting here is something thoroughly radical in the first century. No one else was saying that. There was nothing in the Greco-Roman world that would in any way suggest any agreement with this. He is saying something that is thoroughly, totally, completely radical. Who are they? They're servants. 
and you don't elevate servants. You don't put, you know, you'll put a slave, you don't put a house servant on a pedestal. At least in the ancient world, and even to some extent today. So he's taking that, and now he's going to say, servants through whom you believed. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. So Paul is saying, okay, who are we? Me, Paul, and Apollos. We're servants that God used to bring you to salvation. And then the next verse, he uses uh, an agricultural metaphor, an agricultural example, and it's chronologically how it happened. In Acts 18, I planted the church. And when I left Corinth, along came Apollos. Tells us that at the end of chapter 18 into Acts 19. Apollos came along, and he was the teacher. So Paul says, he watered. Then you have the word, but. God was causing the increase. So a servant. Now, he's taking that figure of speech and closing the circle. Whom were Paul and Apollos serving? Well, the Corinthians, in one sense, but most particularly, God. And it was God who was using them to accomplish his purposes. I believe very strongly that servanthood is the major style of leadership we should follow. And I, I believe that's very, very strong. I think I shared that with you, but if you, years ago, I don't know, it was about 10 years ago, everybody's reading the book Good to Great. And Collins, uh, in the early parts of the book, deals with five types of leaders. And he calls level five leadership, he describes it and he gives all kinds of examples. They're the companies that become great with those kinds of leaders. And in, when he describes level five leadership, he's describing servant leadership. That's what he's describing. And it's, it's just intriguing that a person who doesn't give a hoot about Scripture, doesn't know anything about it, is saying something that the Bible's been saying for several thousand years. Do you know what I mean? That you lead by serving. And as you serve, you lead. And it's, a, it's that idea that Paul's trying to get across. But the other thing I want you to see, because he's going to use another word later on in the text, that we often translate like an instrument. I don't mean instrument you play or that a doctor is. I mean that you're a means. And so Paul will say, Paul, uh, he will say, Paulus and I are instruments. Different word. We're instruments that God uses to accomplish his purposes. And that's a, that too is very consistent with what God wants us to, how God wants to see ourselves. If you are a parent, you are the instrument God is using to raise your children. He raises them through you. And if you're sharing Christ with someone, you're giving a testimony, you're talking to them about the Lord or whatever, you are the instrument that the Holy Spirit will use. It isn't you that's doing it. It is Christ and Christ and the Spirit that are using you to accomplish his purposes. That's how Paul wants the Corinthians to see him and see Apollos. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm trying to say it about three different ways so it really it really drives uh, drives his point home they were elevating people that shouldn't be elevated 
They were exalting people that shouldn't be elevated. I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who gives the increase. So then, verse 7, there are two results to this. There are two result clauses now that follow. Because of what he has said, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. It's God who causes the growth. And there's a second result. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. God uses both. And they're, if we apply it to Paul and Apollos, they're both unified. They had very different ministries. And we, we know a lot about Paul. We know quite a bit about Apollos, but most of you do not recognize a name like that perhaps as much as you do Paul. But Paul, Apollos was a great teacher. He was from Alexandria, Egypt. He was absolutely brilliant, one of the greatest communicators in the ancient world. He was trained and discipled in the things of the faith by Priscilla and Aquila. And so he, he was nicknamed one of these guys with the golden tongues. He was a great orator, great speaker. And yet Paul is saying we had different roles, different responsibilities, but we're one. Paul and Apollos didn't elevate themselves and say, well, I'm better than you because I planted the church. You're just coming along and feeding on my work. That's not how they were talking. And it's understanding with clarity that we each have a different role and responsibility, but we're one because we have the same objective. And our oneness comes from our oneness in Christ. So it's it's just absolutely phenomenal way to look at things because if we truly have that perspective then there's no jealousy there's no envy there's no I'm better than you are because you understand the significant distinctive of roles and Paul and Paul did that so it's, it's, it's lovely actually it's, it's a lovely way to take what the Corinthians were doing and say, let me use this as a teachable moment. And let me teach you, this is Paul to the Corinthians, why God does what he does and why it is very wrong for you to elevate servants and instruments. Now let me stop here for a minute. This, this, is, this is very relevant to you and me today. To see ourselves, whatever God is asking us to do, whatever you know, your responsibilities are as a dad, as a husband, in your workplace, and so on. To see, and, and I, I think this applies to every one of us, if you've made a statement of faith in Christ, to see God working through you, using you to accomplish his purposes and his ends, whatever they might be. There's nothing that's insignificant. There's nothing that's innocuous. There's nothing that is immaterial. All things that we do can be important. Um, that's that's very, very, a very, very important and very, very affirming truth to keep getting across to people. Like a mother who has three children all under the age of seven. And she's feeling guilty because she just doesn't have time to do much in the church. At that point in her life, what's her primary ministry? 
raising those little kids. And she is the servant, the instrument God's using in their life. And at any point dealing with any particular situation, it's to, if we see ourselves in that way, whatever the specifics are, that we are serving God, we are, we, we are his instrument to accomplish his purposes. If we commit ourselves to him and to his values and what he's doing in this world, that's how we'll see ourselves. Nothing I'm doing is unimportant. Nothing I'm doing is insignificant. If I truly, truly seek to serve the Lord, whatever you're doing is pleasing to him. Now, I'm saying that at that level. There's always then the, the, the next phase of that is to be challenging yourself to step out of your comfort zone and do things where you're greater in greater and greater dependence on the Lord. But from just what Paul's saying, at just this one very important perspective, if I'm serious about serving the Lord, I'm an instrument that he uses, whatever that might be and whatever that situation might be. All right, let me stop there for a minute. Questions, thoughts, comments? Not terribly profound truth, yet in its simplicity it is quite profound. But those leaders, those servants, verse 9, Paul switches the metaphor. He switches the metaphor from agricultural to architecture, to construction, to building. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. He switches. Now, maybe a comment in verse 9 about the word, it's, it's actually one word in, in the Greek language, but it's translated fellow workers. There's a little, there's a little prefix to that word which stresses that we are cooperating with, there is a synergistic energy that is used in ministry. It's, yeah, it's from koinonia. And it is, a, it is a synergistic fellowship. God is working through you, but you are in effect a fellow maybe not equal, that's probably not the exact right way, but a, you, a, you are a partner, a cooperative partner in what he's doing. And uh, it's, it's sort of like, my goodness. God is using me. He's partnering with me. Or maybe a better way to say it, I'm partnering with him. The most eternally significant things that happen in life are often done by people who don't have prominent names, don't have prominent reputations, but from God's perspective. They're some of the most important people on earth. Think of a, I've used this example, so I'll use it again. Think of a Sunday school teacher who teaches four and five-year-olds. Nobody knows that person's name. No, nobody has any idea who that is. When I was back east, there was a lady in Philadelphia, she, uh, actually near Philadelphia, but she had been a Sunday school teacher for something like 48 years or some unbelievable number. I think she taught fifth and sixth grade kids. And um, a lot of her students were young boys, 
in the Sunday school because it was in a, in a particular area outside of Philadelphia. And um, someone one time did a little investigation of all of the people went through her Sunday school class. It was amazing. How many of them went on to be doctors and attorneys and pastors, and missionaries? And one of the guys in the church did a further investigation and just asked it was random, so it wasn't scientific necessarily. But so who is one of the most influential people in your life, stirring you to think about the Lord and dedicate your, th your life to the Lord? And invariably, that woman kept coming up. That's the kind of person who is a, in a koinonia, in a partnership with God. And that perhaps is the kind of person Jesus was referring to that in my coming kingdom, the least shall be greatest. We think Swindoll and MacArthur will be so close to Jesus' throne. They're probably going to be way, way, way back there in the Sunday school teacher that caused Chuck Swindoll. But Howard Hendricks, he just went home to be with the Lord, but Howard Hendricks used to talk about a lady he was from inner city Philadelphia who led him to the Lord and who taught him in Sunday school class for three years. He said she was one of the most important people in my life. And Hendricks was one of the few people that knew her. It knew her name and could remember her name. But I'll tell you, Jesus knows her name. And she's going to be one of those, the least in my kingdom will be the greatest. I think that's the right way to think about that. So Paul is really, he's, he's trying to correct their understanding of things. Their values are not the values of God. Let me make, remind you of one other thing, if I can. We talked about this last week, but in the Greco-Roman world, they, they had these traveling itinerant teachers who would come into town, and you would pay money to hear them teach, and they were the ones that just, they were your models. You just elevated and loved them. That's how they were looking at Paul and Apollos, just like those guys. And Paul says, knock it off. Don't put us in that category. We are servants. And now he describes, in verse 10 through really verse 17, he describes this building, and he describes the building materials that they use. So are you with me? Do you understand what he's doing? Verse 10. Remember, he's a, he and Apollos are partners with Christ. You're the field, you're the building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. Now, I want you to observe something there. According to the grace of God, the word there is caress. According to the grace of God which was given to me. What... <clears throat> Word is grace. Like I said the Greek word there is charis. When you put that together with gift, you get charismatic or charismata. So he's he's saying the grace that God gave to me was not salvation. That's not what he's talking about. 
the grace that was given to me was my role as a teacher. I'm a teacher of the gospel. Well, a preacher teacher because he was both, as you know. But my role as a preacher teacher. That's what he taught the grace that God gave to me, that role. So let's talk about this. Why does Paul refer to his stewardship responsibility before God as a grace from God? Now that was not a rhetorical question. This is the part that's called class participation. <laughs> and, and I want you, I honestly, um, I want to drive this home here. I want you to think about that with me. Why? Why would he call it that? According to the grace of God which was given to me. Because you really don't do it under your own power. <clears throat> okay. Back it up even another step. Because that's... Um, please, go ahead. I think... What's your first name? Al. Al. I think that Paul really understood the significance of grace and looking at his own past. Absolutely. The system of works. And then when Jesus came along, Paul looked and said, I can't do this. It's already been done. And whatever I do will never be good enough. And that's kind of how I look at my, mm. my, myself, too. I don't sure if that's the correct thing, but... You're, you're in the ballpark. You're in right field. Let's get home here. But you're, that's good. Take, that, take it another step. I mean, you're right. You're absolutely correct. But Paul is looking now, I've come to faith in Christ. But what I'm doing now as a minister, preacher, teacher of the gospel, and so on, is also evidence of God's grace. It's a grace given to me. Paul merit this. Did he earn this? Did he get to college, get a piece of paper which now qualified him to do it? I'm making up all kinds of scenarios. This was something that God dispensed to him as a gracious, unmerited stewardship, a trust. Like the talents. Yes, you're referring to the parable that Jesus teaches, yes. Um... They didn't earn money. They yeah, it's, it's, it with it. yeah, it's like God has given me the privilege of entrusting me with the gospel. And that's and why that's, we can't boast, because if he gives it, one person five and another person yeah. ten, that doesn't have anything to do with you. It just has to do with the grace that's been given yeah. to you. Yeah, so it's, 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 a, it's an amazing and actually quite um, stunning way to look at what God is asking you to do. So if God gives you, um, again, I'll make this up, God gives you two children, that's his grace. He, out of the merciful, compassionate love of his heart, he gives you the grace of two children to raise. The grace of a of a, of a responsible vice president position in your company, um, a husband, and his gracious gift is your wife. That's sometimes a hard thing to. You know, good days, yes, she's a gracious <laughs> gift. Other days, why in the world did I marry her? You know, kind of thing. 
But it's, uh, I, I'm, I, I tr- I'm trying to stress how Paul looked at this staggering stewardship responsibility to declare the gospel all over the Mediterranean world. He said, it's a grace given to me by God. But he said, now notice what he does. But I see myself as a wise master builder. He's keying in on the metaphor now that you, meaning the church at Corinth, you are God's building. Okay, he's the one who planted. That was the agricultural thing. Now he says, as a wise master builder, I laid the foundation. The other metaphor, I planted. This metaphor, I laid the foundation. And someone else came along, it was Apollos, and who then built upon that. Because he taught, he stayed with them longer. But then notice what he says, let each man be careful how he built upon it. Those who follow <coughs> must have the same perspective I have. And they are to be wise builders. As I was a wise master builder and laid the right foundation, he's going to say later on that foundation was Jesus Christ and him crucified. But everyone else that follows must be equally wise. Because you're accountable to Jesus Christ. So now he's shifting and adding an additional thought. Paul and Apollos and all these other guys are servants. Instruments God uses. They are not accountable to you. They're accountable to Jesus. He will hold them accountable. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. If any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hand, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day, I want to talk about what that means, the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as though going through fire. Now, um, I was hoping I wouldn't have to go through this passage. I was hoping either the Lord would come or there'd be so many questions I wouldn't have to get to this. This is introducing, uh, by I mean this passage, Paul is introducing here the idea of rewards. And that is a very difficult subject to talk about. Part of it is because we have to do something here that is foundational to accurately and completely understanding this. So let me try to do that and make sure that you understand what he's saying, but also with clarity you understand what he is not saying. And then the second part of this is what does he mean by the day? The day shall reveal it. So I want to deal with two things here particularly. First of all, it is it is imperative that you separate in your thinking the matter of salvation and rewards. If you think carefully through all of the New Testament, salvation is a gift from God. 
and it is received by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace through faith you're saved, not of works. Because if it's of works, you're going to boast. So you got to remember, he is not talking about salvation here. He's not talking in any way about salvation. He's talking about serving the Lord in whatever that capacity would be, whatever that calling would be. And he's talking about our accountability to the Lord for how we serve. Now, he's continuing the building metaphor. You have building materials. You have gold and silver and precious stones. I can't imagine building building with those, but you know, that's what he was doing. They're very precious things. And then you have wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, hay, and straw. And then he brings up, and again, he, this is all figurative. This is all metaphorical. The fire will test that. Well, if you think about two seconds, fire comes along, which of those six is going to burn? The wood, the hay, the straw, the stubble. That's going to burn just like that. But gold and silver and precious stones, they won't burn up. I mean, I guess if you get a 5,000 degree heat, but I mean, for the most part, they're not going to burn. So Paul is saying, because the key word is quality, it will test the quality of each man's work. So he's saying there's coming a time when we're going to have to give an account of what we did for the Lord. Paul says, I will. When is that going to happen? In verse 13, the day will show. This is the coolest eraser on the brass. Look at how wide that thing is. Usually, you know, they're three inches or six inches. This thing, oh man. In the New Testament, day or day of the Lord or the day of Christ is talked about a lot. So it's obvious he's talking about that. He's talking about someday in the, in the future, something that's wrapped around the return of Christ and all that, um, when we're going to have to give an account. Now, I'm going to test your knowledge of the scriptures here. Is he talking about the great white throne judgment here? And you're looking at me and say, what's the great white throne judgment? <laughs> Always mix these up. Okay, this, um, this isn't the great white throne judgment. That's in Revelation 20. That's when God will judge all of the unrighteous, all of those who have rejected his grace. That's not what he's talking about. Is this a judgment for sin? No, that was the day at the cross. When Christ died, was resurrected, Sin was just. This is what's discussed in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, and some other places as well. That's kind of a... And this is really, really, really hard because we don't often think about this. But in verse 10 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, There's coming a day when we'll stand before the Lord. I will give an account of how we served him. 
Does that have anything to do with salvation? No. Because he says, when the, in verse 15, the person who suffers loss, they don't receive the rewards, but they're still saved. So, I mean, it's not, this isn't about salvation. This isn't about justification. So, what is going on here? And this is really, really, really hard, because honestly, the scriptures don't talk a great deal about this. But a theme that, a little thread that runs through the scriptures is something like this. It matters how we live our lives. We're not talking about meriting or earning salvation, but it matters how we live our lives. And the Lord wants to motivate us to live our lives honorably before him. The New Testament talks about five specific awards, five specific crowns. And that's what, whether we are to understand those as literal crowns or figurative crowns. But crowns that are associated with enduring temptation, looking forward to his return, enduring and persevering under severe trials, those kinds of things are important to the Lord. Here, it's whether we're serving the Lord, whatever he's calling us to do. It doesn't necessarily mean that, and I mean, as a matter of fact, it really doesn't mean that every one of us is to be a preacher and teach the scripture. That's not what it means. But are you being faithful in what God is calling you to do? The other side of this, and this is what's hard, but it is the right way to think about this. You're going to see it in this passage, and you're going to see it in another passage coming up. This was a positive motivator for Paul. This was a positive, energizing motivator for how he lived his life, because he puts it this way. I'm going to really paraphrase it. But I want to stand before Jesus on that day, and I want to hear him say to me, well done good and faithful servant. So Paul turns, because this is, you have to remember the thrust of this. This isn't about losing your standing with Christ. This is a, we are to look at our lives as a stewardship. And are we serving the Lord in a way that's honoring to him? And part of that process of being transformed, part of that process of, of, of God creating and, and, and transforming us into the image of his son, part of that is we're motivated by a desire to please the Lord. We're not made motivated by the desire that he's going to just keep pounding us into the ground and just shredding us. No, that's, that's not how he works. But that, as Jesus said, if you love me, keep, or since you love me, keep my commandments. It's like, since you love me, serve me. Because I want you to hear me say to you, well done. How about a person who's an invalid all their life? 
what in the world, what is, could God possibly be asking them to do? I don't know, but maybe a significant prayer ministry? Maybe a significant writing of notes of encouragement ministry? I'm just making things up. And that person, Jesus, could say, well done. As well as a corporate executive who runs the company very well to the honor of God, earns lots of dollars every quarter for his shareholders, etc. God's going to say well done to him, but same to that invalid. His primary ministry is one of writing notes of encouragement. I was uh, a very, 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 very dear friend of ours back in our home church in Pennsylvania. She's 83 years old now, I think, or 84. She's a retired missionary. She's, it's hard for her to get around. She doesn't and she, she was sharing this. She was trying to think, what can my ministry be now? Because she had as I recall, it was, I think, in the Sudan uh, in Africa for many, many decades. And so she decided that she would have a singular focus on a prayer ministry. And so uh, she, for all that, it's a, it's a, our home church has become a pretty large church. And so you're talking about you know, several dozen each year. Every wedding at this church, it's in the church. She sends them a card, a typical wedding card, and on the inside she writes, my gift for you is that once a week for the next year I will pray for you as you begin your marriage. Wow. Isn't that cool? Every one of her, and I, I can't remember whether it's, I think it's her nieces and nephews, because she was never married. So I think it's her nieces and nephews, but, uh, and she is, you know, lots of them, I don't know a number. But what she does is every year she sends them a card at Christmas and says, for the new year, I am going to pray for you once a week that God develops within you, and she chooses one of the fruits of the Spirit, that God will develop within you the quality and character trait of peace. Isn't that neat? And so, you, you know, it's not anything profound, and unless she wouldn't have shared that, I don't think anybody would know it except those who get a card from her. But think of the incredible significance of a ministry like that. When she gets to heaven, when she stands in it, he's going to say, the Lord's going to say, well done. Well done. Paul wants us, and as it was apparently the case in his life, Paul wants us to be motivated by this. Not as, and this is where you've got to separate this, not with the mindset that I'm earning God's favor. That's, you can't earn God's favor. But to hear your Lord and Savior say, well done. That motivated Paul. Okay, there were a couple of hands here. I want to make sure I, I'm, I'm hitting them, Daryl. I think um, that, that is a great question. I mean, it really is. Uh, let me key in on your word was attitude. Uh, maybe I'll add attitude, motivation, faithfulness. That's what God's interested in. Not necessarily the result the way we measure results. Do you know what I mean? Because God brings the Because you don't know. You don't know. 
I mean, by I don't mean just Daryl, I mean all of us. We don't know how God is using what we are doing. And, and, and this is not, this, and this is really important, this is not only about talking about Jesus Christ and sharing the gospel. That's not the only thing it's talking about. It's everything. Everything we do, God is asking us to be faithful in raising your kids, caring, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I believe this verse, caring for the, the, the property that God's giving you. That's a stewardship. He's trusting you with that piece of property. Um, your car, your body, I mean, all of those things. And But it, it is, it's that commitment of the attitude, motivation, and faithfulness. Because it has he said it twice? Who gives the increase? Who really produces the results? God does. Pat Kate, who was, uh, he taught at seminary I went uh, to, he, it's amazing because you think of what it is today, but back in the 60s, he was a missionary in Iran. There are no missionaries in Iran that I know of, at least out, out in the open. But he, and he, he spent his entire first term of four years, the entire term, he didn't win one per- person to Christ. Not one person did he know, may have been, he didn't know about him, came to faith. Well, if it's results, that was a wasted four years. But that's not how God looks at it. That's not how God judges. So it's Pat and his family were being faithful. They came home, seven or eight month furlough, went back, and it was amazing. Within the next year, five people came to faith. It was just enough to start a little tiny church in northern Iran. But it took four years, almost five, quite frankly, and a half, till you saw fruit. But it doesn't mean it was fruitless. And so I, that's how I would answer that question. It, God is calling us down to be faithful. And sometimes that means we may not see the tangible results necessarily. And that's what's hard. Because we are so result-oriented. If we don't see results, oh, I give up. This isn't working. Well, that's true. I mean, sometimes, you know, that old saying, the definition of insanity is you keep doing the same thing, expecting something different to occur. That's not the way it works. But... It's, so it's hard, but it is dealing and centering, I think, especially on our attitude, motivation, and are we being faithful to what God's asking us to do? You, you had two questions. Question to that would be, so you've got, you've been a Sunday school teacher for years and years. I'm just using that one as an illustration. Yeah, yeah. But your attitude is knowing what it should be. Maybe you're preoccupied or you're doing it just because you really enjoy working with this other covert. That, uh, yeah. Wow, you're you're. I I don't know. God, could you please answer that question? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't know if I uh, if I can answer that with the kind of authority that I think I could answer with the first one from Scripture. God makes those kinds of evaluations, but I think for um, for us, as we look at something like that, um, I really do think the Lord would over time make it clear to that person 
that, that let's let's talk about how you're approaching this. I I don't know about you. Uh, maybe you you know folks like this, but I remember a teacher who was working with I think it was seven year olds, eight year olds, or something like that. And he's you know I really don't have to prepare. These are just kids. And so Saturday night he'd spend maybe ten minutes looking over the lesson, you know. And what do you think about that? Well, my friend said to him, you know, I really I want to encourage you to think about something. Suppose you were teaching 16-year-olds. You'd prepare for that, wouldn't you? Because they're, I mean, they're not going to get, let you get away with stuff. They're, they're going to be questioning. He said, I want to encourage you to look at your, again, I remember it was seven or eight-year-olds, as if they were 16-year-olds or 30-year-olds or grown-up adults. Prepare as well as you possibly can. Ask God, ask God to energize your study time and motivate you to see those children as the most eternally significant people on earth. Don't you think that's the right way to look at it? It's like, um, I, I remember, and I hope you don't mind me saying it, I remember when I was back in Pennsylvania, a pastor stood up, and this is how he began his sermon. I didn't have time to study this week. So I'm just going to trust the Lord that will give me the word. I, you know, that might be, you know, obviously, circumstances, but one, he should never have said that. <laughs> but two, you know, there's something there that his board or his family or he himself, he's got to kind of reorient his priorities. He needs to have time to study because he is the key person in that congregation's life. And again, it's not necessarily talking about the polished, flawless sermon, but is he accurately proclaiming what God wanted him to teach that morning or preach that morning? Um, It's that, Paul says, as a wise master builder, Paul was shrewd, Paul was calculating, Paul was wise, Paul had a strategic plan, but he understood something. I am going to work my tail off in preparing for this. But the results are up to God. He gives the increase. Andrew. Um, I've, I've heard some people talk about this particular passage, yeah. before, especially about the word reward and stuff like that. And, and I see where Paul is with, I mean, in, in many ways, the reward is God said, well done. But do you think, I feel like there's a fine line here, do you feel like, especially in our modern minds, that concerning ourselves with the reward is building it out of sticks and hay? If you catch my meaning. I do. Yeah, that, this, this is what's really hard, because it is to motivate us to hear our Savior say that. But there is a fine line then between almost the carnality of I'm just, boy, I'm earning a lot of good stuff here I for the Lord. <laughs> you know? And that, if, if we cross that line, no, it's, and it's, um, th- this is a very, very, I honestly, I'm going to be very blunt, I hate to talk about rewards. Because the Bible does not give us enough information. Is it just the affirmation that Jesus will give, or is it something tangible? 
And see, that's the, the struggle for you and me as we think like Americans. We think about Western, affluent. That's how we think about something like this. And I don't, he, he doesn't talk about it here. He's going to talk about it later in the book. And he uses the word, there are two words for crown in the New Testament. Diadem, which is the crown that goes on a king. And Stephanos, which was the, usually it was made out of olive branches, but it was a little wreath that they placed on your head at the end of an athletic contest. And that's the normal one that's used. So, you know, you think, oh, okay, you know, just a little sprig of olive. But that's what was, so it isn't, it doesn't seem to me that we should be camping on, because it just doesn't tell us, camping on the material dimensions of that word reward. That doesn't, the Bible just doesn't seem to stress that. What the Bible seems to be stressing is we are accountable to the Lord. So, uh, you know, if, if I can just leave it lying on the table. Because <laughs> it, it, it is, but it is not, it is very clear in Paul's right. It is not something that we fear. It's something that should motivate us. That's how he's using it. Doesn't it say somewhere also that we're going to take any rewards that we receive. Mm. Well, it's in, yeah, it's in, uh, in Revelation where it talks about the uh, chief elders laying all their crowns at the feet, the, the feet of Jesus. And some have extrapolated from that. That's, that's what we will do. Yeah, and I mean, it, if that in DAC in, indeed is then universalized for everybody, that's, that's, that's good. Because I don't think... The thing that doesn't seem reasonable or even a logical inference is that Joe's going to be in heaven with 12 crowns, and Jim's only going to be in, in New Heaven with two, and he's going to be strutting out, I've got more than you do. I mean, that's, you know, that's an unimaginable situation. That's not going to happen. Whereas if there is some, that these are things that we just lay that at his feet, because Whatever we did was by his strength, power, and glory anyway. Mm-hmm. So, and again, the part of this is like in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whatever this is saying, it isn't self-aggrandizement, self-elevation, or self-centeredness. So it is. it seems to be important for Paul. It matters. It matters how we live our lives. There's a stewardship with it. And what should motivate us, just like loving Jesus results in obedience, loving Jesus should result in stewardship. Because we want to please him. Not to merit his favor, but we want to please him because we love him. You see see that difference? I'm not trying to earn rewards so that I'm going to be better than Joe or Jim. No, 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 no. It's all about Jesus. So. Well, whew, I'm glad this is over. <laughs> it is hard. So tomorrow we'll, uh, I mean, uh, next Wednesday, a few more thoughts in verse 18 and following, but then we're going to transition into, because uh, it won't take long to finish this, into the next major section in chapter 5. And we started getting into some really interesting issues. So. Okay? Thanks for coming. It's good to see all of you. 
if you have any, if, if things like uh, a, a topic like this, if you have some additional questions or things, email me. Don't be afraid to do that. Uh, and let me follow up if, if that's something that you really would like to interact with. Uh, otherwise, we're going to leave this and go on to the next topic. <coughs> Father, we're grateful for the time in your word today. Uh, Lord, if I said anything that was not of your spirit, would you dismiss it from our minds? Uh, instead, to focus on the things that are very much in conformity with what's being taught here. Lord, you know uh, how uh, I've talked to you about this before, how difficult it is to sort out what rewards, what that really means, and to divorce from it that kind of thinking that we naturally have in an affluent society. But it certainly at least means that because we love you, we want to serve you, we want to please you. At least that's what it means. And at least it means that we're motivated by that desire. No carnal selfish, self-centered stuff, but truly want to do everything to your glory and honor because that we love you of all, because of all that you've done for us. That certainly is minimally what he's saying here, is, and it's important for us to, to make sure we don't miss that point. So I pray that you'll uh, be with these men. Thanks that they are willing to take uh, over an hour out of their Wednesdays. Some of them have to come here to this building. Thank you again at Homestead so gracious and allows us to meet here. We pray your blessing on each man here and all that they do, help them to represent you and represent you well. Look forward to regathering again next Wednesday in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week. Amen. Thank you.